From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley and joining me as always is astronomer Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm really well. And you? <laughs> Probably about the same. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I can tell, everything's still there. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, tonight or today or this afternoon or this morning or this evening, wherever you are, we're talking about uh, the Hubble Space Telescope and some of the recent photos of Mars that it's been able to take, simply because Mars is in a, a position where it's closer to Earth than uh, well, where it would be most of the time. Uh, every uh, few years it gets into a, a really close uh, position compared to Earth and uh, it uh, is photographable. I think that's a word, that uh, enables uh, certain features to be seen that otherwise wouldn't be available to us. So uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, it's fascinating. And uh, we'll still talk about Mars because there's a, a, another just amazing discovery that's been announced, and that uh, is that Mars may have, in its distant past, uh, been um, the subject of uh, tsunamis. Now, there's been argument for years over whether or not oceans or an ocean existed on the planet. Uh, they've never been able to find a shoreline, from what I understand, but now they think they know why they can't find a shoreline, and that's probably because tsunamis have basically covered it up, or the refuse of. So we'll look into that. That's uh, just amazing, and if it uh, holds true could really change things in terms of uh, what we know about the planet. And India, we know they've uh, been pretty keen to get into the space race and uh, just uh, got uh, a step closer with their uh, first experiment in regard to unmanned returnable space vehicles or a space shuttle experiment. It wasn't a real one, but uh, we'll talk more about that pretty soon. But first, Fred, uh, Mars and its proximity to Earth at the moment is uh, mighty, mighty close and uh, it's put it in a position where the Hubble Space Telescope can get some really up-close-and-personal pictures. Indeed, that's right. So um, it, this is all about geometry, Andrew. Uh, if uh, you... Well, that's, that's the end of this <laughs> conversation, I'm afraid. <laughs> geometry? I, I was just so terrible at geometry at school. Anything with you know, some kind of mathematical spin, and I was out well, of there. The, the the good news is there are no triangles in it, okay? <laughs> so it's geometry of a very simple kind. And the geometry is uh, that um, about every couple of years, in fact, as you say, uh, Mars and the Earth are in opposition, not politically, of course, but um, in terms of their alignment, their geometry. So what it means is that uh, Mars and the Sun are basically on opposite sides of the Earth. So 
um, the Sun, the Earth and Mars are in a straight line. That uh, happens periodically, and the reason it happens is because Mars has an orbit that is further out from the Sun than the Earth's orbit. Uh, so um, Mars sometimes is actually a long, long way away, but when it's at opposition, it tends to be at its closest. But it's not always as close as it can get because um, Mars's uh, orbit is quite, um, quite elongated. It's quite uh, noticeably not circular. Um, and that means that when you combine that with the fact that the Earth's orbit isn't a perfect circle either, plus the fact that the two are t tilted slightly with respect to one another, you find that the opposition is not necessarily the closest approach. And we have had exactly that situation um, during this, uh, this present opposition. So Mars and the Earth were in opposition on the 22nd of May, um, and um, Hubble took the photographs that you, you mentioned earlier. Hubble's been doing that every Mars opposition pretty well since it was launched back in 1990. Mm. So we've got this wonderful collection of Hubble images of Mars, and, and indeed the latest one is beautiful. It shows not just the planet's reddish surface, but also clouds in its atmosphere, which have a, an eerie bluey-white uh, tinge to them. You can find uh, actually find that... Um, that, that image on many, many websites, news websites and, and the NASA website too, of course. But the, the real, um, I guess, the nub of this story and the reason why we're all a little bit excited about this uh, is that um, the closest approach will actually... Um, the closest approach actually uh, is taking place on the 31st of May. And on that date, Mars and the Earth will be only about... Uh, 75 million kilometres apart. Now, if, if uh, I'm right, and you'll correct me, I know, but uh, that's about half the distance to the sun, oh, give or take? It is. That's right, 150 million kilometres from here to the sun as the crow flies. And so you're quite right, it means... Well, half that, an uh, Earth unit? No, that's not yes, it, is it? It's called an astronomical unit. I knew it was something like that. <laughs> An astronomical unit, so it's half an astronomical unit away. Right. Um, it's, it's that's fairly close. It's actually the closest it's been for about um, well more than ten years. In fact, um, the the closest approach we've had recently, which was the closest approach for several centuries, took place in August two thousand and three, um, and Mars was only fifty five million kilometres away there, so much much less than than normal. And we um, should we, we uh, this brings me to a sideline topic which I, I do enjoy bringing up with you from time to time. Uh, I think that two thousand and three incident spawned the um, the, uh, the the email that's still doing the rounds about how Mars will appear in the sky the same size as the moon, and that's been a, an absolute scam from day one. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes. It's, um, when it when it went out, that that email circular was factually correct. It said that um, yes, this was a this was back in August two thousand and three. This is a very special time um, for uh, Mars watchers because Mars, seen through a seventy five magnification telescope, will look as big as the full moon. <laughs> but somehow, the bit about the telescope got lost. Got lost. <laughs> and um, I think, if I remember rightly, Andrew, it was the 27th of August. And for, certainly for a decade, every August, we got um, emails going around saying, look for Mars this August, it'll be, it'll be as big as the full moon. There'll be two full moons in the sky. You know, it's bonkers stuff. Well, I, I, um, I do remember almost falling for it and ringing you up to see if you'd do a radio interview about it. And, and you said, well, actually, 
it's a it's a bit of a spoof. And I said, well, we'll do an interview about that instead. Yeah. <laughs> and we've been doing them ever since. Yes, we, we have. Everybody can say we don't get good mileage out of these stories. Andrew. That's right. <laughs> anyway, um, so it won't be as big as the full moon. But look, um, at the moment, and certainly um, uh, into June, uh, the the uh, appearance of Mars is going to be quite spectacular. You look in the in the eastern sky during the evening, you cannot miss it. It's a no. golden, uh, bright golden coloured star until you get a telescope on it or binoculars, and then you can see it's got a, certainly a distinct shape to it. And you, you really uh, you've can't got a miss it because the, the colour is 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 yeah. there. It's it's, the it's an obvious it. reddish tinge. Yeah. Yeah, um, so so um, well worth looking for uh, in in our evening sky. Mm, okay, uh, well as you know, I'm I'm fascinated by Mars, and and every time we talk about it, I get rather excited. And uh, being able to see it like we can at the moment is um, is is a thrill. And I did actually get to go to an observatory. I think it was actually in two thousand and three when it was so very close, and and look at it through a telescope. And, you know what, Fred? I, I I had my hopes very high. It's like when someone tells you about a great movie, and then you watch the movie and you go, "Oh, that's how it was for Mars that year for me." Because I was expecting to see something like the actual definition of the planet's surface. And I looked through the telescope, and I looked at Mars, and I thought, "Well, that's just a shiny spot." <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's a bit of a that flat line for me, I'm afraid. Now, Andrew, um, um, I'm going to take you with me uh, because um, I can see from my sky camera that we've got a cloud coming in. And um, I know this is still being recorded, but I just want to see what's happening because the sky has suddenly got really quite cloudy. Um, uh, I should point out, because I'm going to leave this in, I should point out that Fred's observing this week, so I'm, I'm catching him at work, which is not usually the case, and he's, um, he's now walking through his office to see if the weather is going to be kind to him, and it uh, appears not. I can tell from my window, Fred, which is nowhere near yours, that it is very cloudy around yeah. here at the moment. That's right. Don't you right. love my so mobile technology? He's carrying his laptop with the camera going, walking <laughs> through the offices. <laughs> No, cloud cover would pretty well mess you up as an astronomer, wouldn't it? Um, it does, indeed. And certainly what we're doing tonight, uh, which is looking at um, a, about 400 stars at a time in great detail to build up a, a survey of the intimate details of something like a million stars, of which I have to say, Andrew, I'm, I'm a very small part in this project, but I'm very enthusiastic about it. You're enthusiastic uh, yeah, all the gonna, time, Fred. This is going to mess it up uh, quite a lot. So maybe we should uh, instead talk about Mars a bit more. <laughs> yes, why not? Uh, because as you mentioned in your intro, we have uh, new results from Mars that really give us a reason, perhaps, or a potential reason, uh, for one of the mysteries that surrounds the, Mar the history of the planet Mars. Um, we know that um, uh, three and a half billion years ago, Mars had a climate that was probably similar to ours here on Earth, an average temperature of probably about 15 degrees Celsius uh, and, um, and a, a fairly thick atmosphere that, um, that, that kept the heat in. Uh, we know that there was liquid water on Mars because we've seen evidence both from the, the geology of Mars in the Mars, um, the, 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 the Curiosity rover, mm. and also um, 
um, because of uh, uh, the fact that when you look at Mars from above, and there are many orbiting spacecraft around Mars doing that, uh, then you will see evidence of this. There are there are things that, uh, that there are clearly river channels, overflow channels, outwash channels, all that sort of thing that tells you that there has been running water on Mars. And indeed, we know that today Mars has copious water. It's all frozen. It's, it's frozen under the surface. But the intriguing thing is that, um, as you and I, I think, have spoken about before, the northern hemisphere of Mars is quite different from the southern hemisphere. Yes. It's, it's flat, it's low-lying, it's fairly uh, devoid of craters, whereas the south is rugged, lots of craters, lots of mountains, few volcanoes, and uh, really quite a different sort of place, it, almost like a different planet. Mm. So the speculation has always been that the one, one of the maybe the reason for this or perhaps a consequence of it is that Mars's northern hemisphere was once covered with an ocean. But um, exactly as you said in your intro, the problem with that is that it's very hard to identify a coastline. Uh, the, the coastal features that you would look for uh, being basically established by a long-lived ocean, uh, you'd be looking for beaches, you're looking for cliffs, sea cliffs and um, stacks and, you know, all that kind shelves, of... Shelves, continental shelves perhaps, right. drop-offs. Yes, all, all of that sort of thing. You'd look for that. Um, and it, it is there, but it's a kind of mishmash. You, you're not quite sure. There's no sort of continuous coastline, if mm. you can put it that way. Uh, one possible reason for this is actually that Mars periodically changes its tilt, unlike the Earth. The Earth doesn't change its tilt on its axis because it's stabilised by a, a rather massive moon uh, that helps to, to keep the axis of the Earth always pointing in the same direction. On Mars, that's not the case, and um, we know that its axis is tilted by up to 20 degrees, um, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that could, you can imagine, might uh, smear out the coastline of an ocean if you had the, the, the planet wobbling like that over probably over thousands of years, but still wobbling. But the new theory uh, points to geological evidence for... Um, probably about 3.4 billion years ago, for tsunamis that have uh, uh, probably been caused by um, asteroid impacts and have washed up uh, material onto the sort of beaches of Mars, um, and um, or, or at least the you know the the, the, the gently rising slopes that that you, you may interpret as beaches. Mm. And uh, in fact, uh, the scientists who have done this work have identified two. Um, really quite well-established tsunami events, probably se separated by a few million years, um, one of which was a bigger one. The first was, was big. It deposited boulders in, place, in places where boulders shouldn't be there, not yeah. this kind of boulders anyway. Um, and the second one uh, is even more interesting because uh, it looks as though it might be still there. Um, th it's thought that this second one occurred while the planet was cooling and that... The tsunami, when it was washed up, basically uh, s s uh, sort of swilled over the cold land and started to freeze. So yes. you've got slushy material. So, so in f what you're basically saying is that the, the water from that second tsunami is still inland where it yeah. uh, got deposited from the, from the waves. That's right, but it's now frozen solid. Yeah, and how so fascinating. 
It is. So, so that there may be, you know, that may be a really good target for future exploration of Mars, because if there were ever marine organisms in the, that ocean, then there may well be evidence for them still in the ice flows that w were left behind when the, the tsunami didn't, uh, didn't make it back to the ocean when it froze. Mm. So, so what they're suggesting is asteroids impacted on Mars, hitting what they think was an ocean, causing these, these massive waves. Now, what we need to do right now is put people in perspective in terms of what these tsunamis were like. We have seen in recent years tsunamis on Earth and, and they have shocked us fairly dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. They were nothing compared to what happened on Mars, if, if the evidence is correct. We're talking uh, movement of water over hundreds of kilometres, waves up to 150 metres high. These were massive tsunamis. Yeah, that's right. Indeed, they were. And um, it's kind of... Uh, there's a parallel here because we... We know that when the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs um, 65 million years ago, when that hit, uh, it hit uh, an ocean and it caused a tsunami. And you can still see the evidence of that. But I suspect the ones on Mars were bigger, probably because Mars is a smaller planet. So, you know, the same asteroid impact will cause a, a bigger disturbance of, of water. Mm. It's got lower gravity, for example. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I think it's uh, one of the most interesting results that's come from Mars for quite some time. And, and now that they've kind of come up with this this concept, and um, and, and and those that doubted that there was an ocean on Mars are now starting to think, well, oh, hang on a sec, this this actually could be real. They're going to have to start really looking hard at this and 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 try to find proof aren't they uh, this isn't proof positive but it seem, seems to be leaning very significantly that yeah. way so I think what will happen, exactly as you say, I think um, scientists who, are, who, are, who look at these landforms, I think they'll go hunting for other evidence of tsunamis all around the, the shoreline, basically, of the, of the Northern Ocean. I should say, um, Andrew, that, that very few scientists deny that there was water in the Northern Hemisphere of Mars, but the, 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 the two extremes are that one group say there was a, an ocean there that was perfectly stable, lasted for many millions of years, perhaps even a billion years. Uh, whereas the other um, group in, in their extreme form, they say, well, it was only warm and wet for short periods, you know, maybe a few thousand years at a time, right. long enough for, for water to pool on the surface, but not long enough to have a, a very stable, long-lived ocean. Mm. Uh, and so this um, tsunami evidence, I think, does point to the, the idea of a stable ocean. And I uh, think you've got a lot of one of the telltale signs that's come out of this is the scoring in uh, Mars, where the water retreated and it and it uh, it's it's yeah. created a, a a flow effect that you can see. Uh, the, that that in itself has got to be significant. Um, exactly right. That's right. So the, the, all the evidence is there. You, you can see which way the slopes are going, the land slopes, and um, you know you can see um, where the water flow has taken place on that. So it's it's really, I think, very compelling evidence. But I think we'll see more yeah, uh, yeah. as time goes on. And yeah, it's as great. You, stuff. As you said at the very beginning, boulders where boulders ought not to be. <laughs> you are listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and astronomer Fred Watson. To finish up uh, this week, Fred, we're going to look at uh, look at India's uh, place in the space race, and that is their recent experimental launch of a retrievable um, 
space vehicle. Now we know about space shuttles. We know about the the big push by by some of the the heavyweights that are in the industry at the moment to try and have returnable vehicles uh, become reliable and and uh, do all sorts of things, whether it's uh, taking people into space for tourism reasons or taking payloads in for reasons that we're probably never going to be told about. But um, now, now uh, India has, um, has, has had a, a launch of a, an experimental shuttle. That's correct. Um, so uh, the, the Indian Space Agency um, are, are doing, I think, extraordinary things. And just um, to sort of um, uh, tie up the loose end regarding Mars, uh, the Indian uh, space Agency actually has a, a spacecraft in orbit around Mars, which they launched back in 2013. Uh, it was the first—I think it was the first mission to successfully enter orbit around Mars on the first attempt by any country. Uh, so they've they've done very well with that. And this mm. spacecraft is actually st- sending back very useful information about Mars's surface and its atmosphere. But the the um, venture that um, that has been reported in the press uh, this week uh, concerns. As you say, it's a more pragmatic approach to space. It is the idea that the more that we can reuse uh, in our spacecraft, the better uh, we're likely to be because the, it, it will bring down the cost of space flight. And as you said, uh, a number of companies are looking at um, reusing their first stage rocket boosters uh, because that's the expensive bit that gets thrown away in pretty well every space launch. Uh, But now SpaceX and Blue Origin are both managing to bring their launch uh, boosters back down to Earth and land them safely on their tail. So that's one way of saving money. But, of course, another is to have a space vehicle that um, will orbit and then re-enter and land uh, almost like a glider in exactly the same way as the space shuttle did. Mm. Uh, we, we know that that sort of technology has continued. You've already hinted at it with the, um, that secret um, uh, American military space shuttle. It's, uh, once again, it's a robotic spacecraft, uh, but it's very like the space shuttle, and that uh, lands uh, on its own. It goes into orbit. It's actually in orbit at the moment uh, and, and lands, uh, and we never find out what it was doing up there. Uh, in, in fact, the Indian spacecraft that has been launched uh, within the last week or so, in fact, um, is very similar in appearance to that uh, American military one. Uh, really bears a strong family resemblance to it. But uh, this is part of the Indian civilian space program, so hopefully we'll find out what it's all about. They are really using this to try out the idea of, of a reusable uh, space vehicle technology. So the launch certainly didn't send this vehicle into orbit. It took it up something like 70 kilometres, which is not really even what we call the edge of space. The no, edge of the, the, space that's the 100-kilometre mark, isn't it? That's right, the, the Kármán limit at um, 100 kilometres. Mm. But, but it, it, did, it did take off. They, uh, I think they would have been doing dynamical stress testing on the on the vehicle during launch to make sure that um, that it stayed together uh, during the extreme vibration that takes place when you have a rocket launch. Uh, it didn't come back to Earth uh, safely, uh, but it wasn't expected to. Um, it was um, expected that the space this particular model would be would be lost. 
Um, but within a decade, they're hoping to have the full-scale version, which will not be just a model uh, testing the aerodynamics. It will be the real thing and will um, we'll actually uh, start ferrying material into orbit uh, on behalf of the Indian Space Agency at a much cheaper price than we can do it at the moment. Yeah. So, actually, a great story. Um, uh, the um, I, I think the uh, the evidence, all the evidence, is that um, Indian scientists are doing a great job in space exploration, and they're they're going in a very sensible way. I think a, a reusable space shuttle is is actually a great thing to aim for. Yeah. Having said that, um, the NASA space shuttle itself was vastly more expensive than what uh, the Indian Space Agency is proposing, um, partly because it had seven astronauts and a whole big cargo bay on board, a very ambitious project, and one that in the end just turned out really to be too, too expensive to be viable. Mm. Uh, I think the Indians uh, in this case have spent like $14 million US, which in space terms is it's pretty cheap. It is, yeah, twenty million uh, Australian dollars. That's right. It's it's a, it's a very small price. I mean, the same was true with their um, with their space vehicle to Mars. That was done for a tenth of the cost of uh, of a maybe a similar European or or NASA um, uh, spacecraft. And and I guess the bottom line is that labour costs, well, you know, the cost of of of, um, of human endeavour is probably cheaper uh, in India than elsewhere. That's why we get them to make all their clothes. Indeed, yes. Yeah. I was joking, but that's true. Um, okay, Fred, so uh, we watch with interest. And, and just just a, a bit of an add-on to that, uh, I, I find myself fascinated by uh, the, the, the progress of countries like India and, and China, countries that, like, 20 years ago, we, we would have thought would have no hope mm. in the world of, of ever being in the space race. And now they're up there with Japan and Europe and the United States and Russia. I mean, they are true players in this in this amazing game yes exactly i i entirely agree and um, you've you've got to take your hat off, hats off to the indian yeah, space yeah, agency sure, doing a great sure. job mm. so um that pretty well wraps us up fred and and this week uh, and over the next few weeks probably all eyes turned east looking at uh, mars while it's uh, in such close proximity to earth it's it's just something to behold and if you've got the right equipment you can get a real good look Absolutely. <laughs> Get out there with your binoculars. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, Fred. Always nice to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you too, Andrew, and take care. All the best. Yeah, I'm going to bed. You can stay up and watch the clouds. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's kind of you. <laughs> Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory joining us every week on Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for, uh, for joining us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your comments on uh, Facebook. Keep in touch with us. Send us your notes. We love to hear from you. And uh, don't forget to tell your friends. Spread the word. We, we'd love to uh, have more and more people follow us uh, on Space Nuts. Uh, and we'll catch you again next week. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape 
of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.